I'm Nadja Swart for Business, and I'm joined by Roz Neelan Cook, a registered psychologist in Australia and the founder of Integrated Kids. Roz, what is your background? Well, hi, Nadia. Nice to, to talk. My, I'm actually have to say that I'm not registered anymore. I have been suspended as of around three weeks ago because of the, uh, the videos I've been making. Uh, my background is originally, I, I'm a psychologist now. This is my second career. Originally, I was uh, sort of business IT. I've got a, a double major in business and computer science. So I did some research in artificial intelligence and then I retrained over into psychology, probably starting 20 years ago now. Um, so I, I work with, well, I was working with children and families and I have a specialty. I've done extra training in functional medicine, which is really about how, <clears throat> how our, our health, our, our health and mental health is sort of part of a more complex system, how it's supported by things in the environment that have a really direct impact on our mental health, things like the food we eat, which is it's a, it's a really big input. A lot of people don't realise how much we move and exercise, uh, how much we sleep, which I think people are becoming more aware of, um, the amount of screens we use, our social connections, that sort of thing. So it's it's much more of, I suppose, a, a holistic approach to, to psychology rather than that more traditional sort of Cartesian, you know, seeing this head and mind as a separate beast from the rest of the body. How did you end up moving from IT and data to something as radically different like psychology? That's a really good question, actually. The first person to ask me that. Um, because I'm not into money is the truth, Nadia. I, and I used to work, I've worked for luxury goods companies. I've worked for pharmaceutical companies. I've worked for, you know, the big, um, sort of accounting firms as they're, as they're broadly called. And I, just my ethics, I, I really would struggle ethically often with, with the decisions that were made. I mean, I sort of fell into that work as so many of us do. You, know, you come straight out of uni or in your early twenties and, and, uh, and off we go. We get a job and we don't question where we end up. But very early on, I, it just didn't sit well with me that there was so much. Uh, I don't know, suffering in the world, I suppose. And, and yet that, that these businesses, especially the blue chips and those right at the top of the, the food chain, as it were, were, um, it was all about profit and it was all about profit at the expense of it didn't matter who, it didn't matter who, who got in the way. Uh, so yeah, I, early on, it, it just sort of started bothering me a little bit, I think. And I, I remember working in a luxury goods company. I was probably only about 22, 23 and saying to people, does it ever bother you? Because we'd be up at our desks until sort of two in the morning sometimes, you know, stressed out because some consignment of 18 karat gold diamond encrusted lighters wasn't going to make it to Riyadh in time. You know, and I think, and there's all this calamity going on around the rest of the planet. And I'd say to them, does it bother you? And they'd sort of go, no. And I think, oh, okay. And I was young and these were older people then. So I'd sort of let it slide. And then the years went on and I just, yeah, no. No. So I, um, yeah, I ended up, I've always loved children. I've always absolutely adored children and, and didn't have the easiest time when I was little myself with my schooling and, and, uh, and whatnot. So I, I, I always wanted to help. And so I sort of went through a process with a career counselor and, um, yeah, ended up choosing psychology. I ended up that way. So you are based in or around Sydney. Uh, about an hour and a half outside of Sydney in a place called the Blue Mountains. It's a, it's a very beautiful, a very beautiful area. So we've had, there's been an influx of videos 
and accounts from people in Australia on several platforms reflecting the situation on the ground in Australia. Mm-hmm. Obviously, mm-hmm. the credibility of these do have to be questioned. As someone on the ground, mm-hmm. what have you observed mm-hmm. in Australia? What's been happening mm-hmm. here? Well, I can talk about, if you'd like, sort of the last four months we've been through mm-hmm. in the lockdown. Um, is that, yeah, because I'm not sure what videos you've seen. So we have just, well, some people have just come out of four months of lockdown. It started um, back in June. Um when the Delta variant came in and uh, I think we were told we were going to be put in a few weeks. But really, for those of us that had been following what was happening with Delta in other parts of the world uh, and, the, and the fact that they actually, they waited. Delta had come in. It was already in some parts of Sydney. And so we were all saying, close us down. You know, you need to do it now, 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 or this is going to draw on for months. And they didn't. And And I'm not someone that considers myself very across the statistics, but even I knew that this was going to go on forever. And um, and that's what's happened. So for four months, we've been, I can't even remember all the stages we've been through. It's been like a, a bad dream that it's hard to sort of remember. The, but but essentially, we've been um, under house arrest. Uh, we're, we've been allowed out uh, to exercise once a day for an hour. We've been allowed to go to the supermarket, but you have to go on your own. Um, you have to, of course, wear masks everywhere. They even came out at the start of this one, and this is one of the things that spurred me into action, where they said, even if you have your masks on and you run into your neighbours at the supermarket, you're not allowed to speak to them. I didn't know if they said they're not allowed or, or they strongly recommend, but that was actually part. It was um, Dr. Kerry Chant, who's one of the public, I think the know chief public health officer or something like that she said that and I heard that went viral around the world so if you did hear that one yes that was absolutely what they sent what they said um so as a result of that we've been under this very very long lockdown the children have been homeschooled apart from essential workers uh and it's it's just been a very very grim time um even though people are allowed to go out for an hour and exercise every day I think you know, the reality of what's happened to so many people. Um, I've seen it, you know, in family members who I've seen it in friends who are normally very, very healthy. Is that after a month or so of that, that people's, people's motivation just really starts to plummet. And, um, everyone I see that, you know, a lot of people haven't seen in a long time. Everyone's put on weight. Everyone's sort of looking really gray. People just give up. Um, all of those sort of suggestions and things that I certainly recommend from a functional medicine perspective of, you know, making sure you're connected, making sure you're getting the right sleep, making sure you stick to your normal schedules, get that vitamin D through the sunlight and getting outside. Um, it's for so many people, it's dropped away. Um, we know that the rates of alcohol consumption have skyrocketed. But there's a lot of people who have who've sort of been binge watching Netflix and, and, you know, drinking beer and eating pizza. And I totally understand that if I was, if I wasn't a parent, I can't say I wouldn't have fallen into that trap myself. It's um, when you when you're stuck at home for so long, and all of those sort of natural um, well being factors are taken away. It's 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 certainly hard to get motivated, and frustratingly as well. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but from a functional medicine point of view, well, from any medicine point of view, those very things are really key contributors in our own immunity in our natural immunity. So on the one hand, they're saying they're doing these measures to try and, you know, protect people's health. But on the other hand, there hasn't been any um, real public 
awareness or certainly as much as I believe there should be about those natural um, factors in immunity. So since yeah. the emergence of COVID-19 and the results and restrictions, mm, yes. how is your experience mm. and perception about the unfolding reality evolved? Mm. Gosh, it's changed a, a great deal. I've certainly, I've almost, yeah, let me take you back in time a little bit. I'm not sure if you heard in South Africa about just before COVID started or the six-month period before COVID started, we had this incredible fire season in Australia. Did that make your news? It did. Okay. So it was, mm. it, it did, yeah. So it was six months and and I think it started in October. I think it was in October the first time the kids were sent home from school. Um, and the area that I live in is, uh, it's a it's a tourist area. It's, it's, it's very, um, you know, based out in the bush. It's very beautiful, but a, a real fire risk. So, that had started in the October and we're a, we're a tourist economy. That's what we survive on here. It's the, the backbone of the society. And so with those fires throughout this whole summer, what happened was, was that the tourism absolutely didn't happen. It was on its knees. So I already by, I suppose, the January was really concerned about community mental health. Uh, then those fires, I think, were put out <clears throat> either the end of January. I'm trying to remember my timing here. Uh, with these colossal rains that we'd never seen the like of, which were great because they put out the fire, but they were devastating because they caused huge landslides around and quite a few of the key tourist areas here were, were obliterated and they've still not been fixed. They've said that it would take three years each. There was the Charles Darwin Walk and then the Lura Cascade, three years to fix them, and that was before coronavirus came along. And so <clears throat> now it's going to take even longer just because of um, the finances, I, I suppose. So then by the end of that, I suppose we're in the January, February, we start, people started talking about coronavirus. And at first I thought, oh, you know, it's just another swine flu. And what had happened with it, because the, the huge cruise ships, you know, the, the, what happened with the cruise ships, the cruise ships that come into Sydney are, I don't know what percent, but a huge percent of the tourism business. And, and they sort of, these buses will come up for the day and, you know, these, uh, these international tourists will spend a lot of money and put a lot of money into the local economy. So the first thing we'd heard was that those tourist buses couldn't come because of COVID. And again, my, my sense was how are these people going to survive up here? Because if that's taken away and we obviously had no idea, did we back in that February, how long this was going to go on for? I was hoping that they would, you know, understand the, the collapse of tourism up here. And, but anyway, that didn't happen. So. In comes coronavirus, then we all start taking it more seriously. What actually happened was because at the start they were talking about um, really only concerned for the immune compromised and the elderly. Do you remember back then? And my daughter is severely immune compromised. She's She had the, all these un, unknown anaphylaxis, which we now know are down to mould, but at the time we had no idea. So I actually pulled her out of school. I went the other way. I pulled her out of school before the schools had closed. We were having to wear these um, smoke masks for much of the six months of the fires. Um, I was making her wear those when we went to the supermarket and rubber gloves because I was so worried. I really was. I was terrified that she was going to get this thing and die. Um, I was sitting there watching all those media reports sort of glued to them for those first, you know, I really was. I was terrified. I just, and, and interestingly, what happened was quite early on in that first lockdown, watching those, uh, media reports, I thought, because I I just couldn't make sense of it. There were too many, and I can't remember what they were, but 
the bits that didn't add up to me, basically, within the statistics. And I thought, I didn't think, I, I actually thought, oh, well, my maths clearly isn't strong enough. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not smart enough to understand it. That's kind of where I went. And I thought there's clearly people that are much more intelligent with statistics, you know, smarter than me. So I'll, I'll just turn it off because I had a real sense that watching these media reports is really bringing, you know, bringing me down. So I went, no, we'll turn that off and we'll try to get through this and, you know, be as healthy and happy as possible. So that was the start of it. Um, and then, you know, the whole way through my concern was very much mental health. At the start, my concern was about the mental health of the, the parents of the families that I knew were absolutely on their knees because of these fires and the, you know, impact on tourism and, and now these lockdowns. And my concern was around suicide. It was around increase in alcohol consumption and all the things that that would lead on to domestic violence, everyone stuck at home. Um, how that then impacts the, the children. I was really, really worried uh, right from the start. And I remember speaking to people and everyone would sort of say, yeah, yeah, but no one was speaking up. And I kept thinking, because this is my second career, someone's, you know, far more senior than me will come out and 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 let the government know how bad the, the mental health impacts are. Because they, they weren't just things, you know, often if there's a crisis, the government will pump more money into mental health, which is a great thing. But this was going to be much bigger than that. And, you know, as the year progressed, no one said anything. I think what really happened then is we moved into our summer. And the summer, I mean, there were more lockdowns. But by the end, we probably had two months of easy summer where, and, you know, you're a beach sort of culture too. It just, everything seemed okay again. We were, you know, I was very concerned about what was happening in the Northern Hemisphere with their long winter, but it almost felt like it was over. There were certainly no restrictions. There was nothing really happening. And then we had the same, the first part of this year, the same, it was, it was all pretty easy. And then things started heating up again. We had some more lockdowns. Um, what happened for me, I think it was this lockdown was the final straw for me. So back in June and what had happened with each lockdown, the just really unfortunate timing that the school holidays, which were the only chance that the businesses here and in, by the way, all the other communities that had been affected by the bushfires and by the loss of tourism, because it was primarily the tourist areas, um, they had to get really inventive because there were no more cruise ships coming in. So all they had were their local um, state potential tourists. So they came up with all these new ideas to to be, to allow people to come in within the social distancing rules and 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 whatnot. And um, they were very very inventive. Unfortunately, what happened with every lockdown was there was some crossover with the school holidays, so they always lost out. And the saddest part was seeing the local high street up here, which is usually this, you know, full of these beautiful shops catering for all these tourists, and seeing these shops one by you know lots of them closing down. And then what would happen is new businesses would open up and then unfortunately even some of them closed down. So these poor, poor people, my heart would just break for them because, I mean, I've never set up a shop, but I'd imagine there's a lot of work that goes into that, getting all the stock, getting the staff, the signage, and they didn't stand a chance. They didn't stand a chance. So when we went into this last lockdown and again, it coincided with the school holidays and I thought, I can't not, I can't not say anything anymore. No one's going to say anything. So I wrote to, um, some of the, uh, the sort of the industry bodies for psychology. And I wrote and I, and I said, why is no one speaking up? You know, we know that this is going to be intergenerational transfer transfer of, of trauma. We know the effects across this are going to be massive and widespread across the community. Why is no one speaking up? 
And most of them didn't write back or didn't write back for a long, long time. But one of them wrote the next day and she was, she was quite lovely and, and empathic because I'd mentioned we were a tourist area. And she said to me, um, many other psychologists have written similarly. And that was the bit for me because I thought I was alone. I thought I was, yeah, I, I don't know what I thought. Um, but she said many of them uh, have written and she said, but as we have told them, we must tell you if you speak up against a government directive. How does that sound? Against a government directive, you may face disciplinary action and lose your license. And I wrote back to her and it was actually the day that, uh, did I mention, yes, um, when Dr. Kerry Chant had said, you mustn't go out if you run into your neighbours, even if you have a mask on, you can't speak to them. That was the same day I got that response and I thought, this is madness. I, this is insane. So I wrote back to her and I said, can you please put me in touch with those other psychologists? And, of course, she didn't. And I thought, I, I have to do this. I'll, I'll make this video. So I started making a video, and it was really just to raise the awareness of people and especially the government because I thought they they simply didn't understand what these, uh, the impacts of the, you know, the long lockdowns, et cetera, on the mental health of the community were because, you know, in really crude terms, you know, in terms of the, long-term body count, it was without question that the psychological impact and the harms of the lockdowns were going to far, far, far outstrip what was happening with COVID. So I spent a lot of time and and I did a lot of due diligence because I have done um, quite a bit of research and I'm, and I'm very good at it. And I didn't want to get deregistered. So I was making sure this was all crystal kind of tight. But during that process, that's when I came to realise how sensitive the media was and and it wasn't something that I, I took on lightly. At first, I thought I was mistaken because I couldn't. It was just too much of a, a crazy, ridiculous concept to believe that in 2021 in Australia, you know, we're meant to be the lucky country that's heaven on earth, that the media was so censored. And I don't mean just a little bit censored, completely censored. And I kept finding all of these, you know, emeritus professors and professors of epidemiology at the Ivy League, you know, the, the Harvards, the Princetons, the Oxfords, who were saying, stop these lockdowns. This is a disaster. Um, who'd sort of stepped forward of their own volition. And the same professors of immunology around the world, really, really senior academics and professionals who were strongly querying and criticizing the government's response internationally. And at first I thought, I must have this wrong. I, I can't, this, this can't be right. And, I was, I would be sending these articles to, I had this sort of group of key people that basically the, the smartest people I could think of to tell me why this was wrong. Cause I just, I couldn't believe it. And interestingly, what happened during that period is I actually, I, I, I don't know what the right word is. I contracted. No, that wouldn't be it. But I, I had, they believe ulcerative colitis. I ended up in hospital. I was so unwell that I, I lost two stone. Um, and I, I really believe that was sort of the existential collapse of, of, the stress, you know, of the existential realization that our media was completely, um, completely censored. And I didn't know at the time, and I, I mean, I still don't, whether the media believed that they were doing the right thing, you know, that they believed it was, this was so calamitous that to have any, uh, counter narrative was going to be dangerous. I, I, I'd like to think most of them did, um, believe that. And, you know, that there was, not, there was uh they weren't complicit in this but certainly that the, the media was was a huge and still is the biggest problem in this because 
while we're not allowing an open debate between the experts around the world, we can never know that, you know, I can't say because I'm not a medical doctor, but the media can't say what's actually going on. So, you know, my strongest message at the end of that first video was for the media to step back and to allow the experts in all the relevant fields to stand forward on an international stage and, you know, sort of punch it out in the ring, as it were, because it's 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 critical. There's never been a more um, important scientific discussion in our in our times. Absolutely. Is it as a result of this video that you're talking about mm-hmm. that you were suspended yeah. as a registered psychologist? Yes. Yes, it was. And it was. what were the official yeah. reasons provided? They haven't given them to me, interestingly. So I, they, they, they received a lot of complaints. Um, ARPRA, they're called here, the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Agency. And I, I really believe in institutions like that because there are doctors that, you know, do terrible things. And so even though I was told by solicitors not to bother going, they said it would be a kangaroo court and they weren't going to listen and they would suspend me. Um, I, I still went and still attended. I mean, it was like this. It was on, um, on Zoom because I, I, I do believe in those processes, but they, um, yeah, they, they had eight batches of complaints, I think. And, and there were things like that I was pushing, um, or, yeah, that I was pushing disproven medical treatments for coronavirus, uh, which I didn't. I was very clear again saying that these are what some experts are saying. I can't. Uh, have any say in it, but let's, let's have this debated. They said that I was, um, anti-vaccination and I was sending an anti-vaccination message to the community, which I'm not. And as I said in my video, I've said I've, I've always been very pro-vaccinated. I'm probably vaccinated more than most people because I've traveled so much and I certainly would have been vaccinated, um, had I not become so unwell. And then, it, you know, it was delayed. Um, but as I did say in that video, there is absolutely no way I will be vaccinated now until this debate is allowed. And once this debate is allowed, if it turns out that it is a good thing, I'll, I'll sprint race to the front of that vaccination queue. But, you know, that was now three months ago. Was it three? No, maybe not that long. Seven or eight weeks ago. Um, and I've now been involved in so many sort of international discussions and projects around this that I would say, um, I, I'm pretty sure where that debate would end up. But uh, at the time I didn't. So. Yeah, there were all sorts of other things that I was spreading anxiety in the community that I was, um, that I, there was a suggestion that I believed ARPA Ar- to be incompetent, you know, but as I said in that hearing, which was recorded, um, you know, in my answer to that question, the tribunal was, I think, three or four weeks after the first video was sent out. And to answer that, I said, look, my video was sent to all the attorney generals of Australia. It was sent to every member of parliament pretty much every politician, senator, whatnot in Australia, all the chief medical officers, it was sent to almost 5,000 journalists in Australia. 5,000, right? Not one response. I got a huge response from the public and from other psychologists. Oh, my goodness. Massive. All feeling the same way. All terrified of speaking up because they'd been threatened with suspension if they did. But from the government itself, no, not at all. So did I think they're incompetent? And I said, it's it's not, incompetence is a bit, too small a word, but given that they had three, three or four weeks between my sending that video uh, and, and everyone having received it and the tribunal, if they'd have spent that same amount of time that they did on all of these thousands of pages of documents they'd sent me and admin trying to get this tribunal set up into due diligence of their own to look at the problem, but they didn't. 
And so, you know, in that three or four weeks, more people would have died unnecessarily as far as I and professionals around the world are concerned. So therefore, you know, they're, they're, they're guilty of, they've got the blood on their hands. They're guilty of whatever it ends up being, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. But they didn't like that bit. So anyway, they, um, yeah, they suspended me. And then they wrote to me the next day and said, we won't be able to tell you why for another four weeks. I shouldn't laugh, right? It's very, very serious. And it was very upsetting. It was probably one of the hardest days of my life. But um, you've got to find the humour in this or after, you know, what I've been through and what so many of us have been through, you have to find humour or you just won't be able to keep going. So just before we move on to the psychological aspect of what these restrictions and COVID itself has done Mm. to human Mm. beings in general. Yeah. The stories that we have heard on platforms such as BitChute, you know, those ones where okay. it won't be yeah. immediately removed. Things like Australians yes. being arrested if they are further than a certain amount of kilometers from their house. Protests yeah. being completely censored and oh, resulting yeah. in Absolutely. violence where the yeah. intention and behavior was completely peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. How true are these, you know, stories? Oh, 100%. 100%. Is that not happening in your country? I sort of assumed that was happening around the world. So I think there were three there. Let's start off with the first ones. People being arrested if they're a certain amount uh, distance from their house. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's all part of these current restrictions. They, oh, the, the, all the things that people are getting in trouble for. So, you know, of course, the mask wearing, but a certain amount distance away from your house, if you're exercising with too many people, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, as to the, the protest, do you know, it's interesting. And if, I don't know if you ever would cut footage into these interviews, but I, I can send yes. it to you if you want. This was one of the, the first things that opened my eyes and I get goosebumps saying it again. So there was something called Freedom March. And I, I think it was in June. Um, anyway, you can find those dates. It's all blurred into one thing at the moment, but. This, I remember having seen that this Freedom March was taking place around the world. Do you know the one I mean? It was like these huge, so maybe it tied in with one of the Northern Hemisphere cities opening, but it was, it was marches in every city. And this was really the, where I first started to, to truly understand the level of censorship. Because as with all of these international protests, Australia and New Zealand go first just because of the time zones, right? And so I was with some, um, I was with some friends that day. I shouldn't have been. There we go. (laughs) Anyway, walking, exercising. And one of them was showing me, because I didn't know much about the protest. I'd sort of heard about it. And she was showing me on her phone. She was saying, oh, look at that. Isn't that fantastic? And and it was was video live from the Freedom Art, Um, not from a mainstream media channel. Of course, I think it was something one of her friends had taken. And it was beautiful. It was, it looked to me, we were guessing and people guessing down there, 30, 40, 50, 40, 50,000 people. And what we could see was grannies with, with their grandchildren and strollers and, you know, children on, on people's shoulders and beautiful, right? Happy, all these people saying, yay, you know, um, and that was that. And then that evening on the news. And again, if you can get the footage, you will see. All of the media around Australia, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, saying um, something like 3,500 thugs. And, and of course, they show, you know, the guys with the tattoos on their face and all of this. 
Um, and some poor, poor, lovely man who they're saying there was a photo that that was alleging this guy was punching a police horse, right? But then when they showed the video later, he was actually, he was sort of trying to protect himself. Um, and it turned out he was an enormous animal rights lover and devastated by this, you know, on the news around the, the country. Um, interestingly, he was found completely innocent in when he went to court a few weeks later. But anyway, this was the whole sort of premise. And the, and the media were all saying, uh, you know, selfish people, it's going to cause this super spreader event. And, and so that was, of course, how the, the community's feeling about these selfish thugs, blah, blah, blah. Not the case at all. So I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, my gosh, this is really, really, really chilling. But what was even more interesting was what happened the next day, because, of course, that night when we slept, all of these huge events were happening around the rest of the world. And there were millions. There must have been millions of people combined, because I was looking at all these ones in all these different French cities and Italian cities and the UK. And, they, you know, hundreds of thousands added together must be millions. How many of those do you think were reported in the Australian media? Zero, right? So zero. So the next day, Australia is still running all these stories about it wasn't part of a, an international movement that had been planned for months. This was just 3,500 thugs in a, it, you know, that were going to cause this super spreader event. It was extraordinary. And I sat there with the two computers side by side. I wish I'd taken photos of it, looking at these two. And I was going to every media outlet I could find. And that's what happened. And I thought, my God, I, I, I had no idea that that could happen in Australia in 2021. And it went on and on for days, these, these selfish people. And so that's how the community was talking. I was speaking to people, you know, around the community and that was it. Selfish. How could they? They should string them up. They should jail them. And, and the police were, they were doing this shame thing. They were showing all these pictures of people on, um, on uh, social media and saying, do you know this person? Come on, you know, the community stand up and let's kind of shame. It was like a lynch mob. It's incredible, incredible. So yeah, that was, uh, that was absolutely true. Um, in terms of the, the protests that you've been hearing about that have been getting really violent, um, they're down in Melbourne. And, um, yes, that's certainly been the case. And what we're hearing now as well, because we, we've come together as a large group of psychologists and we have been in discussions with some of the police because the police, many of the police, uh, are just as, as concerned about what's going on. And the awful part for them is, is that they're, they're being made to sort of go into all these bullying tactics. So there's more and more police coming forward now saying they want nothing to do with it, which is good. But, you know, sadly for the police, while as a psychologist or, you know, other med medical practitioner, we're threatened with deregister, well, suspension. But for them, it's much worse. They're, they're threatened. The police commissioner in their case makes much bigger threats. Not only are they threatened with losing their jobs, never working again, criminal proceedings against them, those guys will have guns, you know. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's really, really hard for them. So we've been sort of trying to, to help support them, um, in that capacity because really as I see it and many of the other psychologists see it APRA and the police commission are really all these regulatory bodies and this is I, I think one of the things one of the lawyers said as well they're, they're, they're really just like the Wizard of Oz yeah they're sort of there making all these threats and great big noise behind their curtain but actually when you strip the curtain back it's just some little old guy ranting and that the power is is there if people just turn their back, but it needs to happen on mass. 
and so many people. To what extent have mandatory vaccination policies actually been implemented in Australia? Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, it's, it's changed so much. I'm sort of stumbling mm. a bit here because the, they keep moving the goalposts. Mandatory vaccination. So certainly it's different by state, I believe. Certainly in New South Wales, you can no longer work as a teacher. Uh, the kids still haven't gone back to school. I think they're going back. They're starting as of next week and then the week after. So the teachers now no longer can work. Um, certainly there's been large numbers, I believe, of police in Queensland that have now stepped down, thousands of them. Uh, so they're, they're, if they're not through now, they certainly will be by the end of this month. So a lot of people are uh, either being forced to go and get the vaccinations to stay working, but there's, there's an awful lot stepping down as well. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult because for a lot of people, they, they simply can't. They've got mortgages, they've got children. Uh, so they certainly feel very coerced. Um, into that position it's uh what's happened in terms of the practicalities in this country i think it was the 10th so today's yeah i think it was the 10th they had what was called freedom day and do you want Please. me to, to mm. talk about that yeah so freedom day was freedom day if you're vaccinated so many of the restrictions dropped down it's not sort of open slather again where you can have a party of 500 i believe but um certainly people are allowed to go beyond five kilometers beyond their house they can they, most of the stores have opened. So for the last four months, apart from the supermarkets, which did remain open, but with the restrictions on how long and what you could go for, um, you know, the big department stores and Kmarts and whatnot of the world, they had a system called Click and Collect. Did you have that one where you order online and then you go and there's a yeah window and you click and collect? So um, what they've done now is they've, they've basically set apartheid. So if you have been vaccinated you can go to all these stores and you can go in and browse and buy things like you did in previously but for people such as myself who haven't been vaccinated you still do click and collect so I had to go and get something on Tuesday from Kmart and I'd sort of forgotten about the whole freedom day thing so I arrived and she said can you show me your proof of vaccination and I said I'm not vaccinated and she sort of recoiled and she didn't know what to do because it was this huge Kmart and she said oh oh well, you'll, you can go down to the click and collect window, but you have to go very quickly and don't go into the rest of the store. I think I must have been the first one of the day or something. She didn't know what to do. And and uh, so I said, oh, okay. And and off I went down to this click and collect window. And it really, that was the time it really dawned on me. And a friend called me and we were talking about it. And I said, oh, my God, they've actually, this is apartheid. I can't believe it. This is, it just, it felt so chilling to 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 be part of that system. The way they're saying it works at the moment is that if by the 1st of December, they will allow all the restrictions to be dropped off everyone, vaccinated or unvaccinated. So it's sort of like we're being put in the naughty corner at the moment um, in the hope that we'll go out and get vaccinated before the 1st of December. It's, I mean, it, it, it really, it, yeah, that's only dawned on me this week. But it's that particularly it's, um, interesting, though, because yeah, it's, it's, it's almost the opposite of an incentive inducing or incentive-based yeah. go get vaccinated because it's not threat motivated that's it so yeah, well that's it they've tried everything <laughs> so this one so is, it's the first of december yeah. yeah first of december they've tried paying people do you know they pay aboriginal uh, first nation people five hundred dollars to get the shot you the can go yeah, get vaccinated and receive yeah, five hundred Australian, Australian dollars. dollars yeah yeah a lot of money yeah 
it, it's 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 the manipulation that that, that mm. worries me so much. You know, certainly as a psychologist, if something is so necessary for the health of the the nation, why do we need to force people to do it? Why isn't the the scientific argument mm. there and so strong that everyone sort of fronts up? Because, like I said, I've always fronted up for my vaccinations but there's a growing growing number of people who are unwilling to do that and it's interesting when you look at who they are there's a really strong presence in the nursing and and medical community um you know specifically the ones that have been involved in the icu wards the ones that have been there right on the front line and uh and they're not liking what they see not all of them of course a lot of them still do but there's huge numbers that are saying no no and have any of them that. actually spoken out against it at, at the risk of losing you know, yeah. their jobs? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's huge numbers of people speaking out. But again, it's all it's all censored on the mainstream media. But certainly we can put links up um, at the end of this to a lot of videos from nurses, from doctors, from psychologists, from psychiatrists speaking out. It's it's the difficulty is, I mean, even with our group, so we've got a group of well over a hundred psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, social workers, counsellors, etc. since I made um, the video. And we're doing at the moment a group video because we need more uh, mental health professionals standing up. But a huge number of them are still too too scared. And I get that because when you're threatened with the loss of licence and they've seen me get suspended, um, a lot of people simply aren't willing to do that. And I, I really do understand. You know, if you live in one of the big cities and have an enormous mortgage and everyone's reliant on you, you're the, the chief breadwinner, then what's it going to do? Because at the moment, sure, I'm I'm receiving government handouts, yeah, but they're going to pull that very soon. They'll say that that's, uh, you have to be vaccinated to receive that. And then what do we do? We won't be allowed in the shops. We'll have to grow veggies and get chooks. And I've, I mean, that's where it's headed at the moment. It's, it's, it's insane. So from a psychological expert observation, the natural development that children and adolescents experience. In what ways have COVID and the restrictions related thereto impacted yeah. this natural development? Look, so enormously, absolutely enormously. And the extent of, of that, I don't think I even really took on board when I made my first video. Um, it, it, it affects the lifespans, but how it impacts developing brains is, is so key because there are critical periods in, in sort of the wiring up of, of young people where if we haven't, you know, if a certain amount of experiences haven't, uh, haven't been received, then the, you know, the brain starts to solidify. So, I mean, if we go back and start with pregnancy, so we used to think that, uh, when a child was born, that they came out as what we would call a blank slate, right? So that if someone adopted a baby uh, right from, you know, the second it was born, then it would all be about how, what sort of family that child went into. And if it went into a lovely, lovely family, then all would be good. And now we know that is absolutely not the case at all because we now know about um, the science of epigenetics. And epigenetics is really just about how a certain, um, your genetics and, and those are predetermined, how they respond and change in relation to the environment they're within. So what we do know is that women who 
women who give their children up for adoption in, in this day and age, I mean, it was very maybe a bit different going back centuries, but the only reason you would ever give a baby up for adoption at birth is if you're undergoing terrible circumstances and they're usually things like, you know, that the, the, there's drugs involved, there's very often domestic violence involved. The mother is not going to be in a happy state if she's going to have to give up her baby. So what we now know is that that fetus, while it's developing in the mother's womb, when the mother is stressed, she's throughout her body, there's stress hormones, you know, cascading, things like adrenaline and cortisol, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard of. And there, that's what the baby's taking in the womb as well. Now, all of those hormones in the womb are, are giving information to the baby about whether the environment is safe or not. And and really, that's what epigenetics is looking for. It's about getting your genes into the next generation. Is it safe? Is it safe? Is this a good environment? Is this not a good environment? How do how do we need to respond in order to maximise our chance of survival? So when when the fetus senses a, a dangerous environment, which is what's coming through from the stress hormones, it sort of says to itself, "Okay, we're going to come out into a into an environment that's unsafe. Therefore, we need to change our we need so to wire just, up a little bit differently." We just need to clarify, to this is yeah? the experience and the implications for women that have gone through pregnancies. During the last two years, during okay, exactly, absolutely, that's right. And and you know, depending on the stress mm. going on. So for some of them, they've hopefully not been as stressed. I would say on on average, absolutely, the the stress of everyone's gone up. That goes without saying. So and then at the more extreme ends, there's been an even more um, extreme increase in stress because of the things like um, addiction, substance abuse, uh, certainly domestic violence with everyone stuck at home has really gone up. So a lot of these pregnant women have been under enormous stress. So their fetuses have been under enormous stress. So it's not that it's it's sort of a this means that every child is going to come out prepared for a very stressed environment. And, it, you know, it, it's all different levels and there's a lot of different factors there in terms of their own genetics, also the family support they're getting. But on average, absolutely. Um, and so what it does is that these babies' brains will wire up more what we call sympathetically dominant um, and by sympathetic arousal, I'm talking about what you probably know as the fight-flight system. Yeah, so you've heard of fight-flight. So it's basically that the system that we have that responds to stress and either, uh, you know, we, we fight an attacker or we run away. Um, and so the parts of the brain that are responsible for that will be more dominant. So we know that with the with the pregnancies. Now, with the, um, with the young babies and the toddlers, we know that... Uh, Postnatal depression, you must, might call it postpartum depression there, has tripled. That's what the think, figures are indicating. So, and again, some people might just think, oh, well, that's okay, just kind of give them antidepressants or they'll be all right. The, the really big problem with postnatal depression is that when mothers, and this is so not about mother blaming, right? This is, this is quite the opposite. The mothers need more support. And what's happened is those early years, are you yeah. a mum? No. Okay. So those early, especially those early months and, you know, that first year of a baby's life, uh, mums are usually at home a lot more, but there's usually a lot more community connection. So there's, um, public health nurses coming around. There's, there's mothers groups and everyone gets involved. And what we need is, of course, a mother who's very, very supported, has lots of hands looking after her and looking after her baby when she needs that. Now that's all being stripped away. And so the mothers are more depressed and, one of the, the ways, the primary ways that our, what we call effect regulation, so our emotional regulation, um, develops is in that sort of first, 
it's not in the very first period, but it's usually, I don't know, so six, nine to 18 months. And a lot of it is just the the face-to-face sort of, uh, we call it serve and return. It's it's the attunement between the mother, the primary caregiver and others and the baby. And they'll, you know, that's sort of looking at each other and cooing and mm-hmm. and all those things that might to some people just seem, you know, incidental. They're not. It's how the baby wires up its brain. Um, and I, I, I won't go into it. I mean, I could talk about that one for hours. But anyway, the point is, is that that's being absolutely depleted. As a result of the postpartum depression levels, because they're unable to engage in normal and natural connection with their newborns. They still will do it, but we know that just on average, so and I can't give you the figures here, I'm not a perinatal um, specialist, but I've certainly read articles about it. There's a certain number of, of times per day or times per, na- per hour the mother will attune and do the serve and return with her baby in a normal uh, situation when everything's fine. And those numbers come right down, you see. So it's not, again, it's it's not that the mothers sort of turn their back on their babies. They're still there. They still love them. Of course they do. But they they are depleted. They they just don't have as much, um, their bucket isn't as full as a metaphor we often use. They don't have as much support, so they don't have as much to, to give back. So that happens. And then one of the other ones that's been really problematic, and I did a video about this um, separately, but I'll tell you about an experience I had probably about a month ago because I hadn't even really thought about this one. I went up, and this is during lockdown, so I went and I was queuing for a coffee. Um, And, you know, a lot of people go to the coffee shops because that's one of the places that you can, well, sort of have interaction 1.5 metres apart with a mask on. But anyway, I was sitting there and there was this pram, one of those sort of old-fashioned prams, and there was a baby in there who was probably maybe 13, 14 months old and sitting up. And next to him on the, the sort of the bench seat were his mum and dad, and they were both on mask, of course, and they were both like that on their phones. And it's not having a go at them. That is just the world we live in, right? And so the baby was there, the toddler was there in his pram, and I had my mask on. I'm always a, I play with baby, you know. So I saw him and he was looking just really bored and sad. And so I kind of peeked my mask back at him like that and nothing and usually when I do that with that age group, usually they, they'll kind of just smile or even dimple up the first time. And he didn't. And I thought, okay, maybe he's shy. And then I did it again and I pulled it back and he hadn't done it. And that's really unusual. And it was during that. And so then I kept doing it. And I think I got up to about seven or nine times before I saw that first little dimple. And as I was doing it, I was thinking, oh, my God, I hadn't even thought about that because those babies who have grown up with masks, that's what they're used to. They're also now growing up in a world where the parents are like this. Even in the normal run of events, everyone's become so addicted to their phones. And I thought, my God, these these babies, their whole world is kind of caved in. So I was, do- I, yeah, I was doing that with him for a while, and and eventually, you know, by the time he left and his parents got up, ten minutes later, they had no idea I'd been interacting with their baby at all. I mean, really, again, it's not their fault. It's just this whole world needs to realize what's going on here. And they pushed him away in the pram and he was looking out for me the whole time. And I thought, and I'm not, this isn't anything special about me, but that age group, babies normally, if you think about just through their normal day-to-day interaction, they go to the supermarket. And I don't know about you, I love babies. (laughs) You know, they get so many people, all the grannies come along and oh, and she too, and all those things. And the thing is, they're not just nice to haves. They affect how the baby's brains Mm. develop. And that's been gone. That's all gone. And so... 
you know, one of the things that's really now on my top list of concerns is that all these things, you know, people talk about the personality disorders and psychopathy and narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. I'd say it's, you know, universally accepted now pretty much that they are, you know, they're a result. They're not genetic. You don't come along and have genes for personality disorders. You have uh, genes that can certainly make um, it far more likely and confer uh, uh, susceptibility. But this is where epigenetics comes in. Then you have certain environmental triggers that go alongside that that um, will, you know, ultimately manifest in in these in these, you know, really really tricky uh, issues. And personality disorders, as I understand, cannot be diagnosed prior to the age of eighteen. Well, that's the official thing. You could certainly, some would say, you could certainly mm. see indicators of it. But yeah, All that's right. the way it works. Mm. This is an adult. Um, they're all set up in 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 mm. infancy. And they are almost, and they're attachment wounds. They are, you know, certain genetics that go along with certain what we call attachment wounds. So trouble, you know, problems with that primary caregiving relationship. Very often because mum was depressed herself, she might have been in a really tricky relationship. She might have been, but mum is under huge stress and she's not supported enough in a way that she can appropriately connect with her baby. And that's just what we've, that's what we've just discussed. So potentially we're facing a tsunami of personality disorders coming from these children around the world in, you know, whatever you want to say, 18 years, so take off a mm. bit, or we certainly see it earlier than that because we see these teenagers very much, you know, a lot of self-harming, a lot, a lot of suicidal behaviour, a lot of, you know, it's, um, this is huge. This is, it's, it's absolutely planet changing and no one's talking about it. No one's talking about it. It's, it's, it's huge. So I understand that obviously statistics in respect of adolescent suicide rates and just statistics in general, mm. when you take into account the the prevalence of censorship and just complete inability to share this sort of information to make sense of it. Yes. In your yes. experience, what have you mm. observed in respect yeah. of suicide as, amongst adolescents in Australia. Mm, mm. It's a really tricky one, Nadia. As you say, the the with the censorship, it's so hard to, and I've tried and many of us have tried to get our hands on the suicide statistics. Um, the, the official statistics are that suicide has decreased in Australia this year, which I believe is absolute nonsense. And we, um, as a group of psychologists, as I said, we've got over 100 psychologists and psychiatrists and we did an informal poll on our group to, to ask. And of course, it's anecdotal, but just to ask, do you believe suicide has increased, remained the same or decreased this year? And it was 100% increased. Yet that's not what the, the figures are, are saying right now. Certainly, I have spoken to countless, um, parents and, uh, you know, mothers, um, and this is both through work previously, um, informally through my own friends, my own sort of networks, and certainly through the group of psychologists that I'm working with. And the teenagers are, they, they are suffering so much that the self-harm rate, the suicide rate, absolutely, uh, I believe has gone up. It already, it already had gone up uh, a lot with, again, mobile phones coming in. That hasn't helped. Um, but the thing for the teenagers is, is, is we know when you're a teenager, your, your peer network is 
so emotionally salient. It kind of becomes more emotionally salient than your family. Um, and, and they've been sort of taken away. And so the, there's been huge suffering in that way, huge suffering. It's been really hard for them. And, you know, that also, um, sadly, I believe has been used as a manipulative mechanism for the, um, for the vaccination because now, you know, and I've even had it with my own daughter and she's not even a, a teenager yet where her birthday party is coming up and there's been other things where the, the question of they won't be, you know, people won't be able to attend parties, et cetera, um, without, you know, in, in unvaccinated houses or that sort of thing. Is this a regulation that is implemented by law or, or, or just so entrenched no. in so entrenched. the general yeah. human you know, so acceptance of vaccination yeah. as the way to go? That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's it. And, yeah, I won't go into that because I don't want to feel like I've got any because these are all, you know, these are, parents that are friends of mine and and I really I, I understand psychologically why they are where they are I'm extremely frustrated by it and I'm very very concerned for them but you know neuroscientifically I understand why they feel as they do all my family do you know most of my friends still do so what has your experience been or what have the effects been on your life as a result of the, the stance that you have taken mm. Mm. gosh well it's not won me any well no actually that's not true it has won me a, a lot of new friends that's for sure so as I've said before I, I became very ill with the stress of it um I've been suspended so that's quite a big one um but yeah you know friends and family there's there's very few uh, there's a few but very few of my original circle who hold the same view that I do uh so so that's been really hard um what has happened however and I I haven't mentioned this although the sort of the government and the political response to my videos was not positive what did happen was I was contacted by, by you know thousands of people around the world who have come along and said thank goodness um, whether it was psychologists or, you know, mental health professionals who, who've all sort of come in and said, my God, I thought I was the only one. And the thing that people need to realize as well for the people working in mental health right now is that they're all burning out. They're all working enormously long hours trying to cope with the, uh, the fallout of this because the mental health of the community is, is, has been devastated. In Australia, they actually probably now about five weeks ago, they brought out a new Medicare code for intern. Psychologists, so that means untrained psychologists to come in and start treating people because they just cannot cope with this enormous demand. They've also asked the retirees to come out of um, retirement as well. So these people are walking enormously long hours. They thought they were alone. Many of them had already been through the sort of APRA um, process, uh, you know, being punished and made to do sort of extra training and write letters of apology and all this. I mean, it's it, it's it's like being treated like school children. Um, but so there's, there's, there's many of them. That's been enormously um, uplifting, actually, in that we now have this group of, of, of amazing um, mental health professionals and it's growing every day. And, they, and it's, what, I, what I love seeing with that group is that they sort of come in and, and when we first speak to them, we, you know, we have Zooms and whatnot, 
and and very often they will weep um, with the frustration of what they've been through because they're dealing with highly stressed people, suicidal people every day. They're enormously undersupported, on the verge of burnout. Um, but once they realise they're not alone, the the uplift and the power that gives to them is is so yeah, it's 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 a wonderful thing to see because they know they're not alone. And um, and sort of through that, we're seeing lots of networks supported. We're now certainly the psychologists. I, and again, I can't keep up with it because it moves. It's a moving target. But we've all been told, um, I think we have to be vaccinated by the end of this month um, to keep seeing clients face to face. It might even be now. I, I should know that. But it, it really just changes all the time. Um, certainly some of them are switching over to telehealth. Well, I'm sorry, not switching over. We've been telehealth for for all of this period, but I mean remaining on telehealth and not going back to face-to-face. Um, but I'm pretty sure that there's something in place saying that even with telehealth, we have to be vaccinated. So that's where they're headed. They're certainly headed that way with everywhere, that all professions will, you know, lose their licenses if they're not vaccinated. But, uh, you look surprised. Is that not happening in South Africa? I just see it as normal now. No, what, I, what I'm particularly struck by is the fact that I can understand the rationale behind the requirement that you need to be vaccinated if you're going to continue seeing patients face to face, but to implement that like this. Yeah. 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 They're doing everything they can to the community to force vaccinations, whether it's by professional requirements, whether it's by being allowed into stores, they they are absolutely doing everything that they can to have people to be vaccinated. And the thing that really concerns me the most and and for and I you sort of say to people who are listening who are still on the fence is that given that there are medical professionals around the world saying that this virus was never ever ever a threat to anyone other than the already immune compromised or the elderly was never a threat to children they don't carry it any in any different way uh, than if than the vaccinated why are they going to such extraordinarily strong measures in every way to to enforce this vaccination? I mean, they're giving it to pregnant women. That's the one that I that astonishes me because you you remember thalidomide, right? We've been through that. You don't give experimental. I don't know um, what is medical. What is thalidomide? You're probably too young for that. I shouldn't laugh. Thalidomide was something. I mean, it was way before my time. So it was a. A medication that was given to pregnant women that were suffering from morning sickness, right? Um, and and it was before my time because it, it, I think it would have been the late 60s, maybe early 70s. Anyway, and, and what would happen is that these children, babies would be born with various deformities. And the ones I'd seen were around sort of hands and feet. So you'd be born with, say, you know, just three fingers and they'd be fused together um, on one hand and something like that on the other. And the same with toes. I don't know if it went beyond that. They were the ones that I, I've seen publicly. Um, so that was withdrawn. And I'm not even sure with thalidomide, I, I guess it would have gone through the normal rigorous clinical trial sort of testing procedures. But given that the coronavirus ones still are on emergency use authorization, the, clin- the first clinical trial doesn't finish till February 23. Why the hell would we be giving this to pregnant women? And why the hell would we be recommending it for children that were never at risk and not only recommending it manipulating manipulating and coercing I mean it's just it's disgusting it, it horrifies me I, I think that if, if that doesn't get people interested in looking at what's going on then then nothing will I mean it's 
it's it's very dark. It's very dark. We've even brought in this thing here, and mm. I don't, let me just finish on this point with the. In, so not yet in New South Wales, which is my state, but in Queensland and in Victoria, they brought in something called Gillick Competence Consent. And what that is saying is that for a child that is 12 years and over, they can consent without parental approval to this vaccination or this experimental medical procedure because it's not even classified as a vaccination yet because it hasn't finished the clinical trial. So they've brought this in and they're going to be bringing these teams into the school you know, all singing or dancing teams there to vaccinate with the messages of, you know, you've got to do this for your granny to keep your granny safe, et cetera, et cetera. It's so many manipulative. So 12 years and over, over, you are deemed old enough to consent to that, but you're still not old enough to consent to get your ears pierced without your parents' approval. Isn't that extraordinary? And people aren't questioning this. It's It's really dark. It's really dark. And the methods in which they're actually going to approach this, I assume, would be mm. Mm. do this so you don't hurt others. Yeah, do mm. this so you don't hurt others. Do mm. this so you don't hurt others and do this so you can go to your teenage parties, which you won't be allowed to otherwise. So th- there is no more manipulative tactic you could use against a teenager. No. And essentially there's nothing that a it's, parent can yeah. do to prevent it because they're, they won't no. be there. I mean, they can speak no, to their it. children beforehand in expectation thereof. But That's it. That's right. And anyone who is a parent of a 14, 15 or 16-year-old, even some 13-year-olds, you know, it doesn't matter what you say when there's someone on the other side saying, this is fantastic, it's mm-hmm. totally safe, your parents know they just got that wrong and, you know, here's a lollipop. I don't know if they're doing lollipops, I'm being facetious <laughs> now. But don't you want to go to those parties with your friends, right? And you don't want to put your grandma in danger. I mean, I think really the, the alternative is having to pull your child out of school. And um, certainly that's what I would be doing on that day. And I'd highly recommend it to all. Is there not some sort of law? I would assume that there was some sort of constitutional provision in place which would provide enough of a process through which to go to get to that point that would be the logical thinking wouldn't it that would be the logical thing the amount of laws that have been changed and rewritten as a respond of this pandemic and under a state of disaster just state of disaster and emergency that's right and so yeah absolutely what you say is absolute common sense and you could see that happening and you could see it going all the way through the courts and up and up and up and it would take a number of years and there'd be lots of solicitors and barristers that would make a mint out of that wouldn't they interestingly but anyway um, by the time that happened, you'd have how many kids have gone through and been mandatorily vaccinated. And the one that, you know, the, the, the thing that worries me the most about the children is all the, the menstrual and reproductive effects that have been that have been cited and these adverse reactions, vast numbers of them. And this isn't some, you know, conspiracy theorist made up by some quack doctor. It's been written about in the British Medical Journal. It's all out there, but it's not being deemed um no, I don't know. I, and, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you had an emergency use vaccination against, I don't know, one of those plagues they used to have in the 600s where people are dropping like flies, then you would weigh up the risk, right? But what we've got here is we've got risk zero for children, increase in transmission risk zero, and you've got risk quite, well, substantial. They're still low but risk of, you know, all these menstrual effects, risk of death, 
right? There's children that have died. Why yeah. would you do that? And and the thing is, it's again, it's not even blaming the parents. That pa- parents love their children. I'm a I'm a child psychologist. I know parents love their children. It's they're just they're afraid. It's the innate thing. But they are so afraid. They've been so hypnotized by this whole narrative that they they simply can't see it. And that's the bit that's so so concerning. That's the bit where again I say the media has blood on their hands. They're you know potentially guilty of genocide, war crimes. Nuremberg two point zero.